0: Here we go. Roll video. I think anybody creating something new must have an adventure. It's not cinema, it's something else. My advice to young filmmakers is to make a movie every week. The whole bag of movies can be learned in about a day and a half. But suspense is essentially an emotional process. you got you to gotta, you gotta make films, you got to make it and get a scene. Cinema for me is a
1: world of when I dream.
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Behind the Slate. I am your host, Aaron Strand. And today I am joined by an incredible guest (laughs) that I'm sitting here in studio with. You may know him as the co-host of the Seen and Heard podcast. You may know him as the genius behind the Arroyo Film Club, Greg Kleinschmidt. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. We are actually in your apartment Where I am staying in your guest room.
1: I was about to say this is surreal because I'm recording, we're recording right now where I record seen and heard, but you're sitting in Jackie's seat. Whoa. So it's
0: like I'm looking at Jackie, but I'm not. (laughs) i'll also i have a visual image right now where i'm looking across a table it's about three feet wide i'm staring directly at greg we are like face to face i know it's intense right yeah yeah but his (laughs) mouth is covered by the podcasting microphones uh uh pop filter so i just see his eyes peeking out above (laughs) the pop filter but it's a very intense like intimate experience
1: it is yeah no, I mean I think it works for us but there've been a couple times when I was worried about acoustics that we like got these huge couch cushions and Jackie and I and myself barricaded ourselves in our own like little almost like a pillow fort but we each had our own so I couldn't see her so she was like a
0: disembodied voice but it was kind of surreal. We did that for a couple episodes. That's really strange but I also love that because it's like um like Hold on, we're doing something like really serious and yeah. <laughs> artsy, but like, I just need to make my pillow fort first. Honestly, when do you even age out of pillow
1: forts? Like, is it not still exciting? I think it is. Greg, I have a confession to make here on the pod.
0: I haven't made a pillow fort in years.
1: Well, but your daughter's almost one, right? Oh my God. We're Guess getting what? to pillow
0: fort time. It's coming up soon. Wow. I need more pillows. Yeah. I'll get on that. Uh, now, Greg, I wanted to have this conversation with you because Charlie Chaplin is over. Yeah. Yeah. The, the wow. series is... Charlie Chaplin as an entity continues. <laughs> he does. But the series is over. It is... Oh, my God. It has been a marathon.
1: Man, the work... I can only imagine the work that you put into that series. Let's just call it exhaustive. I mean, we could use lots of adjectives. I would say uh, it was uh, the series of a lifetime. <laughs> I I hope not. I hope there's many more series <laughs> series to come. Um, I do wonder if anyone... On, in the podcast sphere has covered Chaplin as extensively
0: as you did though uh not that i can find i don't think so i think people have t- people i have found like little one-off stories here and there and i
1: would say because i'm not the one on your podcast i feel like i can say the word definitive maybe
0: <laughs>
1: just throwing it out there definitive Ooh, good float yeah <laughs> float that
0: yeah let's float that out there let's yeah. float that out there more it's out there <laughs> It's been floated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's been quite a ride. It has been. It has been. I. I. You know. I kind of wanted to have you on to have just sort of like a, a debrief. You know, a little like kind of cool down from this <laughs> from this journey. You know. Um. You know, as both the person that like helped me initiate this entire uh, this entire idea, and the you know as, as a you know just somebody to bounce ideas off of, like throughout the creative process. And as just a person who knows so much about film, you know, I'd love to know sort of your take on some things. Was there anything that you learned in the series that surprised you? Like what, what surprised you the most from this story about either him or about the time period in which he was working? I mean, a lot, Uh, a
1: lot surprised me and a lot I didn't know beforehand. Um, I feel like Chaplin is one of those people where his story is kind of notorious just because of several factors right it's like the young brides it's like his sort of attitude about his own work and his moodiness his overall moodiness of which i had a clue to before but listening to your series it's like paints this full picture i would say the i mean what what was i most surprised about i guess it was sort of like his i didn't know how young especially his first wife was 16 right uh, she was 17, 16,
0: 16 when they met. Seventeen when they married. My God, yeah, yeah, Mildred Harris.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, that whole the saga of her like not being pregnant, like marrying her under the guise of like being pregnant or something, and like,
0: I just, and then she actually was pregnant. So it's really str- the timeline is like really strange. So yeah, so she goes to the press. Her and her mother go to the press first and announced that she's pregnant after months of speculation of their dating. Right. Which like the fact that that even like wasn't even a, like a problem brought up in the press is like a whole other issue. But then she announces that she pr- is pregnant to more or less kind of like, you know, corner Chaplin into this marriage. And uh and then yeah, and then it is revealed about a month later like during a fight that they're having that she isn't pregnant. And we just don't know the details. We don't know if it's um uh if she lied about the pregnancy, if there was a miscarriage, like what happened there? We just don't have any source material, but then she gives birth to their son that passed away right after he was born from birth defects. She gives birth to him like eight and a half months later, yeah, how does that so then it's like is was she pregnant at the time of the fight, and like the timelines are very confused. We're doing the best we can with like the material that we had, and um one other kind of tragic twist to that whole story that I didn't even add in is that after this terrible fight that they had together, Mildred um, leaves the production that she's working on and goes into a sanitarium-type situation with a nervous breakdown where she is given all these narcotic drugs to, like, calm her. And this is total speculation on a historian's part, but some people think that it was those that exposure to drugs that might have led to the birth defects that then right. killed their son. So it's just like tragic, tragic decisions, tragic circumstances just like build up on top of each other, wow. um, which seems to be like Chaplin's entire kind of story throughout the tw- decade of the 20s.
1: Yeah. No, it, I mean, it, it's insane. I think anyone that sort of watches his films for the first time because they are comedies and because The Tramp, for the most part, right, is this sweet lovable character for the most part yeah um it's just it's so bizarre and i think too when you see photos of him in real life not as the tramp um you see photos of him like at hearst castle or something and it's like he was so dapper and like he's just like the image of a 1920s 1930s like suave hollywood type right and it's just so bizarre like to hear him talk with his like he just you know such he, he has such an eloquent voice, and just to learn all this stuff, like all this very torrid stuff about his past is just like,
0: like it almost doesn't fit, right? Like it's like what? Absolutely let me ask you this do you think it's the disparity between those two images that create art like if he presented himself as more if like if he presented himself as this sort of like sleazy like rock and roll guy of the 20s like would we accept his behavior a bit more in the way that we seem to like accept that keith richards just is keith richards
1: no i don't think so because look look what happened to lewis ck that was the case like his whole stand-up routine ended up being like that's his that's who he is right that was revealed like oh this is just you are this just kind of gross like you know i i don't think so i think you know and i think maybe in a way the fact that he led this kind of torrid personal life maybe helped him i think there's like a tipping of the scales in his art of like wanting to go in the other direction or like you know what what the the thing that you can control if you can't control your life maybe you can control your art and maybe the way you want to come across in life you can come across in art.
0: Yeah, I I don't know what to think anymore, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be honest, like I mean, my my image of him is in many ways shattered and yet <laughs> while at the same time deepened. Right. Um you know, one of the things that I found interesting in making the podcast is that I was totally repulsed by learning many of the things that he did and yet in making the show was able to find some sort of like just on a personal level kind of like coming to terms with it to the point where like I can enjoy his movies like going forward but I think that was a direct product of kind of like sitting for hours and hours like going through these stories and um you know in this sort of like fast in in our modern culture where we digest and consume content at such a voracious rate and we're expected to make moral judgments on people like kind of in a split second like in the space of like reading a tweet where we need to decide like am I ever going to watch this this comedian again you know yeah um and I don't know how to like carry that forward I just know for me personally that like by going through kind of step by step of this man's life I was able to Come to some sort of personal piece, like between by separating art and artist.
1: That's cool. No, and I think you walked a really nice line in your series on Chaplin. Look, this stuff is complicated. And I do think in this day and age, we put so much emphasis on the knee jerk reaction. Like you have to have an opinion and you have to have it now. Right. And some things you just have to sit with for a while. And the world, the art world is full of problematic people. And obviously, there's different degrees of everything there's different scales of debauchery (laughs) sorry i just that word debauchery um (laughs) and it's like each case is its own thing and um yeah i just you know it's a delicate line when dealing with someone like Chaplin, who again just was not the uh you know the kindest person in the world um and you just you did a great job with that
0: yeah. Anything else? Anything? Any other kind of like details that jumped out to you? Also, did you hear a door close? Yes, I think that was the ghost. <laughs> Some Hollywood starlet had lived in this apartment and hung herself
1: because she didn't book a Chaplin movie, and she hears us talking about Chaplin. Oh
0: God. <laughs> um. So I wanted to ask: Is there any anything else like jumped out to you? So um, the whole exile part. Again, you. I knew
1: about that before. But it's I didn't know that it was like as intense as it was. And I didn't know that it I thought it was in my mind. It was like for a year or something like that.
0: <laughs> I just didn't know that it was like to that extent. Dude, it's so crazy. There's literally a report of I think a showing of limelight in a theater in Ohio where the crowd had a riot in the movie theater and like pulled up chairs and like were throwing them at the screen. I'm sure it was, you know, somewhat staged, to like demonstrate their outrage at a Chaplin movie. But even to just think that like movies mattered that much. Can you imagine like, you know, going to go see like (laughs) Hulk, like a group of people are so incensed by like the latest Hulk film that they like tear up chairs at their local AMC. It's like a, it's like a,
1: the Beatles (laughs) record burning, right. In terms of, because he was such an icon, he was such a part of the culture. And so it was meaningful. It was like a, you know, I get what, you know, this grand gesture. Um,
0: yeah, that's pretty wild. Now, public favor in in the UK and in Europe stayed really high.
1: Yeah, well, that's kind of a thing, right? That's why Woody Allen is still making movies in Europe. Right. You know, I think that they that's why Roman Polanski is there. It's they're they're more forgiving of not saying they should be, um, but they're more forgiving of people's uh major shortcomings
0: <laughs> the american it is a part of the american's uh psyche to for lack of a better word cancel people yeah. a- and to, like in really extreme ways there's a, a podcast called history on fire by uh a, this italian professor and historian daniele Bellelli. and his most recent episode is about a man named thomas morton who established a colony uh just below plymouth where the puritans were settled And, of course, we're all taught the Puritan history of the colonies. Well, Thomas Morton founded a colony, uh, as described in this episode of History on Fire, where uh, they had um, fair and reasonable relationship with the native peoples. They traded with them. They intermarried with them. There was freedom of religion, freedom of expression. And this was such a threat to the Puritans that they killed a bunch of people in his colony and exiled Morton back to England. Oh, my God. So it's like... Hewn into this weird puritanical spirit of America that like should anyone exercise just a little too much freedom that, you know, it is within our power to just kick them out. Right. And this is <laughs> and it's terrible. I mean, I don't think that should be the threat of anybody, regardless of what side of the political spectrum they're they're on.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, look, it's a complicated issue. Um I don't know. There's no real right answer about it it's it's we are very quick to pass judgment on someone before we kind of know like all the sides um but i also kind of think that that was like a necessary reaction to years of people just being silent and um people in power uh being abusive and you know, I, I don't know. It it's it's a tricky, uh it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one. And obviously every <laughs> yeah. case is different. Yeah, I would say sure. it you know, obviously now in America, Chaplin is universally loved and I think a lot of people don't know uh, a lot of the seedier history of him. Right. Until they listen to your series.
0: Let me ask you this. I'm fascinated by this ethos of this early silent era, this like make it under any circumstances cutthroat, yeah. Cutthroat, but also incredibly empowering, inventive, experimental—like whatever. Let's just try something till it works. Uh, and an amazingly, an amazing time for artists, especially within a commercial setting where they could actually like really capitalize on their films. Now Chaplin's work then shifted as Hollywood became bigger, more successful. And you had to balance that sort of creative freedom with, you know, concerns about labor, treatment of labor, work hours, union requirements. What do you think that we can take from the ethos of the silent era? And how do we balance it with, you know, these other kind of practical concerns of industry that are intrinsically tied with movie making?
1: I think it's... Look, the silent era for not just comedy, but film in general, it was so it was such a flowering decade like film is still this relatively new medium i mean honestly pretty brand new but people were already taking it and running with it yeah and stuff that was done in the silent era like the best stuff of the 20s and the teens still feels like modern and cutting edge which is like really saying something i think look there's there's a go for broke attitude of just like let's push this new medium as far as we can in any direction that's like so exciting that we've lost today completely gone yeah um but yeah obviously as time went on and you know things got a little bit more proper in terms of, I think well you know maybe in the 30s I think maybe with the advent of the sound film is when they started targeting movies a little bit stronger would you would you say i don't know like towards audiences like okay maybe people want to see this whereas like i feel like the silent era i'm like oh you want to make this eight hour movie about napoleon like go ahead it was that kind of (laughs) thing that was the attitude
0: well i think it was i think it was more i think the studios were targeting all the time i mean chaplin's whole career was saved by the new york office of keystone pictures right. calling max in it and being like send us more chaplain like right. people are loving it you know yeah so, yeah yeah that's true So i guess that's like some early sort of like audience testing like algorithmic uh, data right. uh, but uh i just think that like in the silence there was just a bit the the possibilities were such that an artist who wanted to make an eight-hour napoleon feature could have uh, just felt empowered enough to do so Whereas now I think they're like so many millions of people are going to come into their lives and say, don't do this. This is a mistake. This is stupid. No one will watch it Um, that it'll never get made. (laughs) And also, like, we'll never give you money for this.
1: Exactly. No. And I think the key with the silent arrow is like trusting the artists. And I think trusting someone like Buster Keaton to co-direct his stuff, trusting Chaplin to direct, write, produce, score, star in his own movies like it's such a huge uh, belief in the artist that is not there today. <laughs> like, you would never, the studios would never hand someone, one person, this much power. Right. And uh, I think we can learn something from the Era. <laughs> like, look, look, I mean, you know, I don't want to be too negative, but, and I know we we're briefly discussing this earlier, but I do believe that our current time is the worst time in history for popular films. I'm not saying that good stuff isn't being made, because it is but for big popular movies that people go to the theater to see, this is the absolute bottom of the barrel. And I do think because these movies, these films were for everybody. And I do think we can learn a lot from going back to these and taking notes and being like, they took risks. Like, did this make sense? No, but they wanted to do it. And it was kind of a crazy idea, but they did it. And look, it's, it's a classic now. So I think just a belief in the artist, like if you're buying into an artist the way they did with Chaplin like we believe in you we want stuff from you let them do their thing that's what it comes down to letting them do their thing to to a degree
0: right but do you think the answer to today's sort of studio mediocrity rut which i totally agree with do you think the answer is artistic empowerment
1: yeah yeah because i think the problem with today's films today's popular films is that there's too many cooks in the kitchen and it's all like studio mandated product of like what they think people want to see. And really at the end of the day, honestly, people don't know what they want to see until the right thing comes along. Did people know that they needed uh, you know, I'm going to think of an example here. The Tramp. Sure, the Tramp for sure. It's okay, yeah, to directly into this. <laughs> Did people know that they needed the Tramp? No, but when they saw him do it, they're like this is it. And so I think Hollywood of today is so concerned about what's been successful already and what people already like. They need to be looking ahead. What's the next thing? Who what artists can they invest in? Cuz that that's what it is at the end of the day. People are into the talent. It's the people. It's it, you know. So yes, I do believe that we need to go back to sort of like authors and not you know, because even, yeah, look at the, the the Hollywood blockbuster was invented. Well, not invented, invented, but came of prominence with Jaws, right? Which is a very, like, that is a Steven Spielberg film. Like, that is his film that has his stamp on it. That's his movie. And so we had that for a while. And then it just evolved into studios being the main creative force, which I think is just really wrong because they don't know what people want to see.
0: On the one hand, like... um I totally get why uh, by market sense, like it's way smarter to invest in properties like superhero characters that can outlive their their stars that are attached to them. And it makes total financial sense to double down on these intellectual properties and franchises that can outlast the creative talent. Because then you're making, all of a sudden you're printing money for decades long after your star has aged out of a character or whatever. You just pick somebody else. I totally get it, but I just see such a parallel between that and the horrible parts of the studio system of the 30s and 40s. Mm -hmm. The practice of... Marvel or any other uh, studio universal monster universe. (laughs) The dark Um, universe. The dark universe. (laughs) Yeah, Greg was telling me about the dark universe before we got... I didn't even know about it. But any sort of studio that's planning out their movies 10 years in advance, this is so parallel to the block booking system of the 30s and 40s where they, would, true. they would force a the theater yeah. to buy 10 B movies for every A movie and they just flatten out everything so that it's all universally profitable and universally mediocre. And they make their money, but we don't get the stories that provide meaning and substance to our lives. And right. it blows my mind to learn because I didn't know this that the Supreme Court ruled that this practice was illegal, that it was non-competitive, and was terrible, and was hurting the consumer. And the Supreme fucking Court of the United States saved American cinema from itself. <laughs> And yeah. I can't imagine that happening today. I don't think Amy Coney Barrett's coming to save us, but uh, <laughs> I, I think too, I
1: I would even look more favorably at the blocking system because at least in that case, it wasn't all the same cut from the same cloth. You know what I mean? Like you would have a couple gems that would slip through the system. Um, And obviously a few decades later, again, not the blocking thing, but Roger Corman would make a whole career off of just tossing movies out and like making them super cheap and getting people in seats. But, like, there's something to be said for, like, just, you know, I don't know. I think it's just bleaker today because they're all of the same series, basically, you know? And uh, also how seriously they take them today versus in the 30s and 40s where they're like, yeah, we know this is a B-movie, like, you know, but today it's like... No, this is, like, the height of entertainment.
0: And the dollar amount associated with them, like, defines it, right? Yes, like, exactly. You can't attempt a blockbuster movie without this huge sum of money.
1: Because who would think, even going going back to what I was saying for a second, because I just had a clearer train of thought, look at all of our the franchises now that we're, like, hanging on to and reviving and keeping going. They were all gambles. Star Wars was a gamble. Back to the Future is a gamble. Look, look at that story. Yeah, a kid, like, goes back in time to, like make sure his parents stay together. Like it's a whole, like that doesn't have blockbuster written on it, but they were all gambles. Yeah. And that's the only way. Sure. You're going to have a few misses, right? Like not all of them are going to be great, but when you give people that chance to like go out on a limb and do something a little bit different, that's how you get your aliens, your jaws, your back to the feet. Like that's how that, that's where that stuff comes from.
0: I'm so worried about the next 20, the next 10 to 20 years of filmmaking (laughs) because you know, with the advent of like, we all have you know the old line of like we all have a a camera more powerful than i ever had in our pockets and like and films are more accessible than ever and like anybody can make a movie with their phone and it seemed to have this promise of this gold- next golden age of independent filmmaking but i'm not seeing it and i think in many ways it's like the it's in some ways it's the opposite of the block booking conundrum where Studios would buy out an entire theater and then an independent producer couldn't get their film on screen. Instead, there's just so much content that, like, no one even knows where to turn. Yeah. I'm such a glut. Yeah. Um,
1: we're inundated with content. I don't even like the word content, but that's what it is. That's what it's become.
0: I do think that that's where a quote unquote. Tastemaker, a quote unquote produce, producerial touch is so important because, on the other side, like I look at what Netflix is doing, which seems to have echoes of artistic empowerment, and everything is also like universally mediocre there too. Yeah. <laughs> because artists need feedback artists need uh producers to kind of keep them in line they need feed uh uh, someone to tell them like uh, you know to help them craft their stories because it's just a, a monster that like is so hard for one person to do that that producerial oversight is critical yeah i think that's where you really see hbo succeeding like because they are so rigid with like their expectations of prestige content yeah um so I don't know if it's like a hundred percent artistic empowerment is always the answer because
1: it's like within reason, right? Yeah. Because again, not to trash our Lord and Savior, Marty, but uh you know, <laughs> the Irishman was not his strongest film. And I think Oh my god. <laughs> you know, they gave him carte blanche. They were like, yeah, it's, yes, whatever, whatever. And I think that that can be harmful too. As a filmmaker, as an artist in any medium, I think you should have certain limitations. Um, not saying that they should be giving him notes necessarily, but no, maybe not 250 million for that. Maybe you only get 150 or something. You know what I mean? Like, you got to have something in
0: place. It is why Lars von Trier's documentary, The Five Obstructions, is one of my favorite movies. Of oh, all time. I haven't seen it. Oh, my God. It's so awesome. <laughs> it's so amazing because in the film... Uh, Lars von Trier goes to uh, Jorgen Leth, his, like, favorite old Danish filmmaker who made the short The Perfect Human. Mm. And he says, I'm going to fund you to remake The Perfect Human five times. And each time I'm going to give you an increasing list of obstructions that you have to work around. And at this time, Jorgen Leth is, like, in retired. He's, like, living in Cuba. He, like, doesn't want to make movies anymore, whatever. And he just, like, accepts the challenge because he like, it's, like, a payday for him. And he starts making movies with all... the His first obstructions are like, you have to remake the movie in Cuba. No shot can last longer than like 20 frames or something like that. It's like some crazy short time wow. period. And so... And so with each, you see with each set of obstructions and each time he has to remake the movie, he's so excited by like figuring out around the limitations that really it's a story about a young energetic filmmaker coming and re-inspiring his hero and like re-gifting him the spirit of artistic innovation by accepting limitations on your work. And I find this like so inspiring, both as an artist and filmmaker myself, who has to like accept a lot of limitations in my filmmaking. But I see it all the time. It's why I think following is Christopher Nolan's best film. I think Christopher Nolan should get a $6,000 budget from here on out. <laughs> no more $200 million, no more $50 million. You get 6000 because you made it work once, and it was honestly your best movie. <laughs> I completely agree with you, though. I think...
1: Any for any person, carte blanche is just dang It's not, not. It's artistically dangerous. I think it's, you know, the line in Willy Wonka at the end when Charlie's on the glass elevator and Willy Wonka says to him, "Do you know what happened to the kid who suddenly got everything he always wanted? He lived happily ever after." That's a little bullshit. And I think you have to have some limitations. There has to because that is the point of creating art. Nothing is going to come out exactly 100% the way that you envisioned it, but that's part of the joy of making it is figuring it out, figuring out different ways, usually improving it. Like, oh, I, I wanted to do this, but actually this works way better, and because we can't do this logistically you're
0: thinking of other ways and then you come up with a better idea so like that stuff is so important and you see that especially with those like prestige titles that you identified with like you hear that you hear the stories about making star wars the first one and all the limitations that they had to work around that led to these amazing inventive solutions that created this like universe that inspired people so much that they're still willing to fork over hundreds of dollars of their hard-earned money to these like shitty reheated burritos 50 years later uh you know <laughs> yeah which have none of the same sort of like ethos and spirit and inventiveness and playfulness that star wars you know the original had i do
1: think that that new star wars trilogy is like the, the perfect example of like hollywood filmmaking as, as a complete failure like at its rock bottom yeah tell me why <laughs> I mean, without getting too into it you know just the fact that it's complete incompetence like it's just a matter of planning a new trilogy to a beloved series and obviously george lucas had already done the prequel trilogy and fucked those up those are terrible also the way that people have come around on those and they're like no actually the prequels are good now like bullshit they're good are <laughs> you kidding me it's a testament to how bad the the new ones are recent
0: (laughs) sequels are
1: but it just blows my mind that you would create you would announce and create a trilogy with no through line beforehand it's just like okay each person's gonna come in and do their own thing but each each person can come in and like undo what was already done and of course you get these directors ryan johnson coming in and completely ignoring what had been set up and doing his own thing and then kind of fucking up the whole arc of it's just like a bunch of petty boys like playing on the, the playground and like undoing each other's stuff. And it's just like no one needs
0: to see that, that trilogy was a complete failure on every level. But Greg, I would argue that Disney and the geniuses over at Star Wars Disney executed the plan perfectly because here's <laughs> the thing is these franchise, they don't give a fuck about the directors they don't give a fuck about the actors they don't give a fuck about anything they have their little check boxes that they will need to check and we got to feed the audience this the algorithms have told them that they need this element and this element and this element and this element and, this element, and we're gonna again reheat a burrito from the 70s we're gonna <laughs> serve it up and honestly fuck america because a billion people in china are gonna fucking love this shit and we're going to make so much fucking money. Who gives a fuck what Ryan Johnson does? We couldn't care less. He can fuck up the movie as long as it doesn't have anything that will get us uh banned from China, we're good. Plan executed. Yeah. And that's what's driving blockbuster filmmaking. Yep. <laughs> 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 yes.
1: <laughs> I kind of love this conversation. Um yeah, you, you know what? what's most mind-blowing about today's day and age is, you know, a lot of people are signaling that this is, like, one of the worst eras for popular movie making. But then you have so many people pushing back on that, saying, like, no, you guys are being snobs. Like, these are films, too. These are movie stars. They're not just superheroes. Like... And there's such incredible pushback, and I think the people that are making these are getting so butthurt. Like this, like uh, James Gunn, who did uh, yeah. the Guardians, Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and I think he's now on the DC team. I think he's doing stuff for DC. But great, he keeps like. <laughs> it's like scorsese makes a comment once about them being theme park rides which honestly is a compliment like oh that's what they should be are you kidding me this is you're fooling yourself if you think you're making like a proper film here like it's it's a theme park ride as it should be you know like spielberg stuff those are theme park rides and they're great like it's okay it's not a bad word but like scorsese says this one thing and james gunn just keeps periodically getting butthurt about it and like keeps bringing it up like goddamn like scorsese like we're making real movies okay fuck like <laughs> yeah and the
0: actors are all falling in line too of like well i'm not just a character like i'm really bringing my artistic take and like <laughs> you know thou dost protest too much i say i mean the like the defensiveness from these uh people uh i, I think really belies the that they know what's happening in some sense. I think they're compensating for what they know to be the truth. As artists, not that I'm one of them because no one gives a fuck about me, but as artists who are more successful than me, many of them face a Faustian bargain, right? Yes. Take the money or take your integrity. <laughs> if you've become a part of this franchise, I'm sorry, you took the money. And like you knew that was, if you didn't know that was the bargain that you were taking at the time, then like you're a fucking idiot. (laughs) Just to be frank. Okay? Okay. Faust was written hundreds of years ago. Like we know that this is a bargain that we're faced with. Okay. You sell your soul or you maintain your integrity. And so to defend it and try to spin it that it's something else is intellectually insulting to all of us. And I think you're totally right. Like saying something is an amusement park ride and it's not cinema is a generous statement. Yes. Amusement (laughs) park rides are, are awesome and I don't personally like them, but I respect they exist and that, like, they take a lot of technical skill to execute and for no one to die in. And we all understand that it takes a huge financial investment and a lot of people riding them to make them functional. We are pro theme park rides. Yes. But, like, no theme park ride is ever going to deliver a uh, uh, insight of the human soul <laughs> that might like bring tears to your eyes. Yeah. it just won't. That's not what they're designed for, and that's okay. Right. Um. And there's room at a cinema for all options. Exactly. But right now we aren't seeing those options. You know, it's intellectual dishonesty to try to claim that Thor Ragnafuck is the same as as uh, <laughs> as cries and whispers. I mean, come on. <laughs> yes. And look,
1: these people that are claiming they're playing dumb about the word cinema or they're like, oh, you're using the word cinema like you're a pretentious asshole who has his head up his ass. That's that's so wrong. Like, guys, look, there's a difference between a proper film and a and a movie. And again, not to sound pretentious, but there's stuff that's made for entertainment and that stuff can be great, too. But then there's cries and whispers, like you said. And it's like they're different things. And like this whole like anti the word cinema thing like just really pisses me off because it's it's like discrediting all these incredible films through history that are something more than a theme park ride. And I think it's like, no, babe, what they're all. It's like, no, you're like, it's, it's just total horseshit. It's total horseshit. Well, Chaplin. Well, we, <laughs> well, we've
0: gotten to the bottom of that. Thank yeah, God. Yeah. I think we just got that off our chest, honestly. Yeah. Let's take a breath. I feel better. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh god. I just I I feel like you have to keep fighting the fight, you know, in this day and age. As uh, like a cinephile and a filmmaker, you have to be vocal about this stuff because if everyone's just subservient and we let these huge corporations steamroll this our like cinema is my life and I know it's your life. Right. And If we're going to watch our favorite thing in the world be steamrolled by Disney, you know, it's like, no, I'm not just going to sit by and watch that happen. Like, you have to be vocal. You have to be, like, out on the front lines. (laughs) This is a grassroots campaign, okay? Oh, (laughs) Greg, you're so hashtag brave right now. I'm really (laughs) impressed. I'm loving it. It's just, these are very bleak times for people like us who, the the kinds of movies we make and want to make are... I mean, I don't use, I don't like the term Oscar movie. Cause for me, an Oscar movie is actually a bad word, but it's, you know, Oscar bait, but it's like, we're looking to make more insightful films and there's not the seeing these articles constantly
0: about how there's no room for those anymore and stuff. It's like really disheartening. Well, what do you think is the problem? Do you think it's that people aren't being offered movies that speak to them or are audiences just like over that type of pastime? Um, like, is there a way to get people back to the theater? Or do you think that the uh, uh, cinema in the future has to go more niche, you know, catering to people who are sort of like already on board?
1: Well, look, I think as much as I love going to the actual theater and I love living in LA, we have plenty of repertory theaters, which I go to all the time. And I love seeing stuff projected on film in a theater with an audience. But I, I've i accepted the fact that my any films I make in the future might not be theatrical, and and I'm okay with that. I think that's one thing, like, theaters, you know, as most people are predicting, theaters will be for the huge movies. And that's sad, but people still need to fund these, you know, the other films. Film is gone, theaters are dying, like, all that stuff. But, you know, the kinds of movies we make, we still need to have the whole buffet. Like, we can't just have the desserts because I refuse to believe that society is just dumber now than they were like 30 years ago. I refuse to believe that because I don't think people are dumber, but we're all buying into this like kid stuff. This like kid, these kid movies and like, but the the worst part about it is they're like (laughs) dressed up for adults. It's like, no, it's adults, but it's like, no, it's a kid's film. Like it's okay, but it's a kid's film. Yeah. There's nothing adult about this. (laughs)
0: Well, what do you have to say about the the you know the kind of opinion that like well those movies do exist they're just TV shows now they're HBO shows well, I hate
1: that because I, <laughs> because a film's a film right and I I know we share similar opinions on on TV I love a great TV show. But I think a lot of stuff, because we're in such a TV age, I think a lot of stuff is pitched as a film and the people go, okay, but can you make it a series? And people are like, well, if that's the only way I'm going to get it made, sure, I'll do a series. And then they don't have the material to withstand five seasons of a series or whatever. So I'm a big fan of limited series. Like, that's a thing. That's a thing. Uh, but my favorite form is still just the film, the The feature film is like so pure, the fact that you can perfect something in 90 minutes or two hours. You can make it pretty close to perfect. Whereas like TV show, I mean, that's just so much harder to do. Yeah, I agree. It's so much time. It's so much time. And,
0: and you do, you end up with TV shows where you just so clearly feel that this would be a great hour and a half, two hour long story. Yeah. And they just stretch it out yeah. into some 10 hour season. Monstrosity. And it, Yeah. just And you have characters that don't go anywhere entire arcs and subplots that just get lost by the wayside and they and then they try to like justify it by being like well no that was just a red herring and it's like no that was an (laughs) unthought-out story development yeah um now i do think it's kind of interesting like in getting back to the silent film and as like people were figuring out you know this relationship between this new medium and the market forces that dictated it yeah and this is how we got feature films you know, because at the, at first everything was shorts. You know, at first that was limited by just mechanical means. You know, it was just easier to make one reel of film, and you handed the one reel to the projectionist, and he puts on the one reel, and you have a ten minute short, and that's that's your one reeler, right? Yeah. And um uh, but you know, Chaplin's sort of jump to features, I think, is really interesting. That um you know he was recognizing that drama features were becoming a thing, and it is also a byproduct of mechanical developments of the 20s where people had more leisure time and like they wanted to spend two hours of their day watching a movie that was valuable to them you know and so it's it's like i don't think that the the feature film as we've come to know it existed in some sort of platonic ideal you know it was dictated by market forces just like anything else and i do wonder if the market and the distribution models and the streaming services of which people are using do make that like true two-hour storytelling just kind of not modern at the moment. You know, right. I, I, I'm i kind of conflicted because I love two-hour stories, but I also see how like in some ways they don't fit into our modern lives. Which is really depressing. <laughs> well, because
1: everything is meant to be uh, binged you know, it's everything. But it's so funny because these same people that are binging stuff now wouldn't sit down for a two hour movie. Like, they don't sit down for two hour movies. Like, oh, it's too long, or two and a half hours. Like, oh, that movie's so long. But they'll watch six hours consecutive of a TV series. So it's like. What's the problem? I think they're just like having an out every hour, every 45 minutes. Like, okay, I could stop here. No, I'm going to keep going. Whereas a film doesn't give you the out you're in it. And then you're in it for the whole thing. And then it lets you out at the end.
0: Yeah. My wife is a big television watcher. And I do think that that option, that out option is like really important to getting her commitment. And then she will consistently watch like yeah. a lot of TV. In a Same row. with my wife. <laughs> but I think that also we can credit um, a dramatic element, which is that like, as part of those outs, these TV shows are also delivering dramatic cliffhangers and dramatic questions at very specific intervals. And whereas older, you know, especially sort of more artsy films were asking an audience to sort of sit patiently and wait for a, uh, a climax, you know, an hour and a half or two hours in that we as modern storytellers could learn a lot um, from sort of that expectation of, uh, not like cliffhangers per se, but these, you know, real dramatic question moments, real kind of like act, act turning shifts that keep you involved with just the simple, the simple human, because I think all these problems can be solved. All these uh questions can be answered if you just get an audience to be interested in what happens next. Yeah. If you can get an audience to ask that question, like you've got them. You mm-hmm. won. And I think as modern filmmakers, like that's the the thing we should be obsessed with, you know?
1: Right, right. That's a great point. What do you think, um,
0: going back to Chaplin. Yes, (laughs) (laughs) this is about Chaplin. Is it though? We promise. Is it? Um, What do you think we can learn from Chaplin's career? If there's any lessons to be gained, either on the personal side or the professional side? I
1: think... Going from the professional side, I think Chaplin did pioneer a a certain kind of film. I think Chaplin, it's obvious that Chaplin's influence is, you can't even, it's immeasurable. It's monumental. But like his mastery of the, I don't like this word, but dramedy, the way that he was able to bring levity to these comedies, right? He starts off doing the one reelers, his first couple movies, and then he brings in this very, real very human kind of bittersweet melancholy to a lot of his stuff and that is still that model is like we still use that today oh, and i think he was absolutely. the pioneer of that kind of film and it's like very it's very Chaplin. And like can you think of an example before like maybe the kid uh that kind of balanced comedy and drama that in that way
0: not in film Right, film. I mean, he's definitely building on traditions from the English music hall. Right, he's building on like older traditions of English comedy that like had that you know he, his old boss Fred Karno was like, oh, if you have this comedic sketch and then you give the character this like silent beat, which he called wistful moments, <laughs> then it will actually make people laugh more because they've empathized with the character. Right. right, like this was his personal revelation. I'm sure it was done in the English theater tradition long before then. But in film, no. And it's like, we would not have The Office no. without Charlie Chaplin. I mean, I'm sure someone else would come along and like have invented the same basic beat because I think it's intrinsically human. But he got there first. In he, film. He got there first. And I think you can see so many elements from Chaplin's work that are more uh, uh, prevalent today than at any other time because we are still uh, in kind of the tail end of like the dramedy boom yeah um i mean whether it's those single camera comedies of the 2000s and 2010s or you know getting a little more modern with like fleabag and like all this sort of stuff of like this you know the sad clown character who's like willing to like look directly at the camera and it all goes it d- goes right back to 1918 yeah and uh charlie chaplin which was just mind-blowing yeah it really is
1: and we're talking right now. Uh, we're recording this in Pasadena, California, which is actually just a couple miles from the bridge that's in the kid. I think it's called the... Oh boy, <laughs> I don't remember what it's called. Arroyo Seco Bridge or something like that. Oh my god, what's it? Called? I'm googling and I hit the wrong thing and I typed in Arroyo Sex and hit Go on Google. What's coming up? I didn't even look at the results. <laughs> arroyo seco bridge oh no no sorry it's called the colorado
0: street bridge it's not as fun it's not as fun i I wish it was called the arroyo seco bridge i agree (laughs) but that's okay colorado street bridge it's a gorgeous bridge but no no
1: i i completely agree i mean he's the blueprint for as far as films are concerned Chaplin is the blueprint for a certain type of film
0: you know it it warms my heart To hear you talk about Charlie Chaplin in such terms, because I couldn't help but notice (laughs) a certain Buster Keaton poster hanging above your kitchen sink, Yeah, which is one of the many beautiful posters that Greg has (laughs) in his apartment. It's actually like, it's incredibly gorgeous. But you are a big Buster Keaton fan, aren't you? Yes. (laughs) So it begs the question, Charlie or Buster? Look, look. (laughs) I'll say it this way, okay?
1: Okay. My introduction to silent comedy was like Modern Times and The Kid and The Gold Rush. The Gold Rush, I think The Gold Rush and The Kid are my favorite Chaplin movies. I kind of like the earlier ones better because they're, this kind of ties into the Buster Keaton thing. They're a little more compact and they're not as indulgent as something like even modern times I feel like goes on a little too long and it's Great Dictator too, great film but there's some fat on it you know there's they could have trimmed a little from The Great Dictator and then moving through <laughs> I don't Limelight I don't love Limelight either I think Limelight is starting to get like pretty indulgent at that point I, I don't know that they necessarily need to be pitted against each other I'd also throw Harold Lloyd's name in the ring oh, <laughs> I can see you rolling your eyes over there <laughs> um born a third and stayed a third <laughs> but i would argue that lloyd's stuff is like when he was great he was really great like not that it needs to be said again but safety last is like a masterpiece
0: yeah for sure you know for sure you get one i mean one masterpiece great, You know? <laughs> Chaplin had like 20 but so okay.
1: my thing with buster keaton so I, I don't necessarily like to get in and like you know although Jackie and I do this a lot on the podcast like pick one over the other because it just you know makes for good uh content but yeah look I would pick Buster Keaton because here's here's the thing this is so bizarre to me but I like Buster Keaton's economy of storytelling I've never seen a Buster Keaton movie that overstated its welcome and I think just the physical stunts that he pulled off were so much more impressive than Chaplin. Now, see, impressive, here's the thing. They're stupid, right? Because they're incredibly dangerous and he should have could have died on many occasions. Chaplin's stunts are not as like death-defying. Chaplin has this easier charm and swagger, but there's something about Buster Keaton that feels slightly more modern. I think the mud, like Charlie Cha- um Buster Keaton just kind of raising an eyebrow or something like there's a certain kind of there's a deadpan delivery to Buster Keaton that feels slightly more modern than Chaplin although Chaplin is timeless the tramp is timeless so I'm like contradicting myself but there's something about Buster Keaton where he doesn't really he doesn't have the heart okay the heart is not there so I, I accept that but what you get instead is compact incredible storytelling I do think that the general is the greatest silent comedy of all time and even though here's the thing it it's it's not just a great silent comedy it's probably also the greatest silent adventure film ever made action film ever made like and it, not just silent but it's one of the best action movies ever the general like everything we have today came from the general in terms of like, the way he cuts those chases with the train and there. you are giving me right now—but no, it's the general is staggering in a way that, like that, to me is more impressive than any single Chaplin
0: film. Wow, <laughs> wow, uh, that's great. No, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm glad you indulged me in this, in this exercise, and that you know, by the end there, you really said it with your chest that, that the general is just the best, and uh, I hear you. Uh before I like launch into my vociferous defensive chaplain. Uh it's not even a defense because I don't have anything to defend, he's just better. Uh I will tell you a fun <laughs> story though about the general. Uh so obviously I'm you know, I'm from the South and my both my family parents' families are from the South, which means you discover some unsavory things from your past. Right. And one of the uh, interesting like little si- uh, side uh is um my mother and grandmother were contacted by a uh, a small city in northwest Georgia, they genealogically discovered that a distant relative of ours was a Confederate soldier who stopped, helped to stop the actual Great Train Robbery that the general was based on. Wow, he was one of the Southern guys who like ran down the Union soldiers that stole the train. So it's in your blood and stopped them. <laughs> yeah, and then, so but my mother and grandmother were invited to a town to accept a like a a, a plaque. in honor of our relative that we didn't know existed of course when they get there they realize and both my mother and grandmother are very liberal ladies they realize it's this big like confederate oh my god like daughters of the confederacy like (laughs) celebration and that they were celebrating you know his confederate courage and they were like oh god like thank you Oh but like they would already showed up it was too late yeah so yeah my mom has this uh, certificate (laughs) somewhere in the basement (laughs) that's great i love that um so, listen, I I will grant you that Keaton's stunts are incredible. Absolutely. The best stunts. He's got the best stunts. <laughs> He's got great stunts. You know, some people like Tom Cruise over Marlon Brando. And I get that. Some people like Michael Bay over, oh boy. over Ingmar Bergman. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Um, I just think that like, and I, I I, actually, I do what you brought up about Keaton being more modern, I think is dead on, you know, in modern acting, we expect actors to be so minimal, so minimalist that even those like prestige performances of the seventies can often feel overplayed in a way because everything is so down, so deadpan. And that I think we can definitely trace back to Keaton, whereas Chaplin- you know, even though he was a true believer in like naturalistic performance style, which I think is why his comedy still works to this day, you can probably make a more direct tie to some of those like, you know, performances of a of a bygone era that were a bit bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, but I do think that there's something lost there—that dramedy aspect, that pathos that comes with the laughter. That Chaplin like genuinely brings out in the emotion is nowhere near Keaton. I know. He doesn't <laughs> he doesn't bring any of it in. And while his stunts are visually impressive, and of course they he did it in real life and it adds this element of real danger, and they're super exciting. I don't think that the films operate on the multi-level um I agree. Complexity that Chaplin is yeah. is doing. You know the other thing that I would just say is that, like, look, Chaplin was there first, and Chaplin was there long after it's I true mean, Keaton had like a nine year run, an eight year run, whereas Chaplin's making films from nineteen fourteen to the nineteen seventies yeah, I mean, this is just like his and like was were they all masterpieces? No, but a shocking amount were that level of deliverability and sustainability is. Beyond impressive, uh, I think, and I-, I think his highs were higher. I I get why uh, you say that the the general is the greatest action silent film of all time and i know orson welles has that quote about it being oh that's right maybe the best war film of all time maybe the best (laughs) film of all time (laughs) but i think the gold rush is a better action film
1: do you i do it's so funny because on paper i would like chaplin more because he has the pathos but for some weird reason i just gravitate more towards buster keaton and you know what it might have to do with i've been watching Charlie Chaplin movies for longer than I have Buster Keaton, so Buster Keaton is newer to me. Like, I saw Modern Times as a teenager, and I saw uh, The General in my 20s, so I just feel like there's a certain, like, I don't know, there's still, like, a freshness to Buster Keaton for me, and um, yeah, it's 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 not even just The General, too, it's um, Steamboat Bill Jr., and it's... Uh, <laughs> The Navigator, like, there's just... And they're all... They all come in in a really brisk run time. I think even, like, the General's, like, an hour long or yeah, something. Yeah, it is. And there's... I know the Kid is the same way and stuff. I think maybe the Gold Rush is. But there's just something to be said for getting you in and out really quick. It sounds, <laughs> I sound like such a Huck story now. You get in, you get out, you get thrills, and then you leave. And you don't have to think about it afterwards. I don't know. You know, too, what it is is... Uh, the composer Carl Davis does scores for a lot of the Buster Keaton movies. And I love his scores and not saying I don't love Chaplin's scores for his own films. Cause I'm thinking about like the end of modern times or the end of city lights and how beautiful those scores are. But I love the Carl Davis scores that he did off- obviously way after the fact for the Buster Keaton movies. And there's just a sense of, um, I don't know. Yeah. I think, I think, honestly, it sounds shallow, but I think they're just more thrilling. I think that's what it is. I think they're more thrilling, and Buster Keaton's deadpan delivery, just uh, that, that combination just does something for me. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think that Keaton definitely seems like a guy I would rather hang out with oh, for in sure. life. Yeah. I mean, he's <laughs> like, I, I but he's like, you know, he's simpler, he seems nicer, he seems less crazy. But Chaplin is an actor, like, I mean, a real actor. I'm amazed by the fact that, sometimes you look at Chaplin's face and he looks like the most repulsive man (laughs) I've ever laid eyes upon. I mean, like, truly, like, disgusting. And from a different angle, he looks gorgeous. Angelic. I mean, like, yeah. And I mean, he is a true chameleon. The kind of person who's so dripping with talent. uh, Uncontainable talent. a A true animal force. Yeah. That... um that there are times that because he does contain multitudes, (laughs) (laughs) I think I might be in love with him Uh, because he does, because he contains these multitudes, like a true artist, a true great artist should, he also contains all the unsavory bits. And it's very easy to like point at those things and say like, well, I don't like that. I don't like that scene. I don't like how that movie made me feel. I didn't like how this bit made me feel. I don't think what he was trying to say here was right. And I will grant you all that, but I also think that when taken into the whole body of his work, it's such a more impressive, uh, uh, virtuoso performance uh, as far as a career. The other thing that I would say is that we're we're totally dismissing is Chaplin multiple times made movies that were so ahead of their time that they were uh, 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 total busts, Yeah, right? What he did with A Woman in Paris... In 1923, by telling this naturalistic story that was moved, Michael Powell to quit (laughs) his job and take the first job at a movie studio that he could, you know? Yeah. And to then go back and do it again with Monsieur Verdoux, which this uh, murderous critique of capitalism, yeah, that was also a comedy. I mean, this is like a modern TV show that we'd see on HBO today, only he did it in the 40s and was panned for it.
1: Here's the thing, Aaron. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Uh Uh-oh. Verdue was made in 47. Uh Uh-huh. Arsenic and Old Lace came out in 44, which I would argue has a very similar tone of being a very dark comedy about murder. Uh, So I'm just going to put it out there and say uh, Arsenic and Old Lace was there before Verdue, but, uh, you know... (laughs) And Arsenic and Old Lace was based on a
0: play, so it goes back even, it predates 1944. <laughs> okay, I mean, I, listen, I'm not saying that he's invented right. comedic murder, okay? <laughs> I, I mean, I get it. Right. I get it. But to be the quote-unquote most famous person in the world and to risk your entire reputation on the line with a and try to say something that's like not just a sort of lark about comedic murder that's also a critique of the culture that's like actively trying to destroy you and to do that like all at once where like everything you do is like you're putting your whole kind of legacy and like future on the line I mean, I think those circumstances like are a bit more intense than arsenic and old lace. Yeah, I would say so. And um, <laughs> the fact that he was willing to do it over and over and over again. And I mean, of course, this is like a crazy compulsion of his. Mm-hmm. And a cr- I think he was addicted to the adrenaline of it. It still led to the creation of these pieces that I, I think are way, 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 way ahead of their time. And that sort of forethought is something that I, I don't think is present in the Keaton films as wonderful as they are.
1: Fair enough. Honestly, fair enough. It, and again, it's like, I love Chaplin. It's, it's just in terms of like a mood thing. Like most of the time I'd rather watch a Buster Keaton, but I love Chaplin. Um I'm curious. I don't remember if you said it on your show. I feel like you didn't. If you have a favorite Chaplin movie.
0: Um Yeah, I, I didn't. I, Um, Well, now's the time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, It's City Lights. City Lights? I think City Lights, I mean, City Lights is amazing. I think that so many of the gags in City Lights and like just even just the smart little beats. It's so clearly the culmination of 20 years of work. You know, you're really that is when you're really like truly watching a master at work. He's drawing he's he's making he's pulling out gags from his old films and like reformatting them and some people saw that and thought it was lazy. I think it's like the iterative process of an artist He's improving who's right? improving and finding ways to like pick cherry pick the best pieces and put it all into one story And I think city lights is the crowning achievement of silent film. It is taking all the best elements from the first two decades of filmmaking putting them into one, cohesive story that then tops it all by delivering maybe the most beautiful ending in cinematic history? I mean...
1: I'll give you that it's... You know, it's a great ending. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like City Lights. It's sitting on my shelf. I have most most Chaplin movies. I love City
0: Lights, but that's not much of a. I'm sitting here in Greg's uh, studio where he literally has like hundreds of DVDs in cabinets. So to say, well, I have City Lights. It's like, yeah, you have City Lights and every other movie ever made. uh, (laughs) All the good ones. All the good ones. (laughs) (laughs)
1: no no yeah it's a it's a super iconic ending it is you don't like the ending no it is it is what's what's your problem i don't know <laughs> i think because i've just like seen that end so many times which is not the movie's fault but it's just like you know we see it in reels and stuff again not the movie's problem but no i don't i love city lights it's great it's great it's well, not it's not the general but
0: <laughs> yeah we can't all just blow up a bridge <laughs> <laughs> yeah what an ending Michael Bay loved it, um, <laughs> um, oh man yeah, uh I but look, the reason why that ending is so great is because it really cuts to the if we're gonna make the distinction between cinema and amusement rides, the true power of cinema is that it cuts to the it cuts to the core language of the human soul because whatever you're talking about, whatever the characters are talking about is secondary to the subtextual language that we are experiencing as a viewer. And that ending is the height of subtext. I mean, that ending it com- takes place completely underneath the, you know, words, the captions that they use. That's true. It takes place completely within the limits of a, of a, of a languageless language perfection that was epitomized by the silent films and what the silent film stars thought was being lost by the advent of the talkies. Now, I think they were a bit blind to the fact that subtext lasted well into talkies and modern films and whatnot. But that film captures something that I think is so um, powerful about movies. I I can't think of an ending that's better.
1: Well, it's important. I always say this. It's not entirely true. I don't 100% believe this. But I do think by the time the silent era ended, we had kind of already done like, like there haven't been that many breakthroughs in film since the silent era. Like they'd already kind of done most stuff at that point. The silent era was incredibly experimental, but yeah, no, I mean, it's a great ending. I'll give you that. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my favorite ending ever, but it's a great, it's a great one. There's a, there's no denying. Do you know what your favorite ending ever besides the general would be? (laughs) The general doesn't even have, like, a great last shot. Um no, because it's not as good of a movie. <laughs> I actually can't recall. I don't know if I have, like, a single favorite ending ever. How does,
0: how does Temple of Doom end?
1: Uh, not <laughs> amazingly, but the rest of the film is really A-plus material. Uh, <laughs> honestly, one of, one of my favorite endings is the ending to Annie Hall. Oh, yeah. You know, I would say I like... So shoot me. I like the ending to Annie Hall more than the City Lights ending. <laughs> that's not fair. It's made forty years later. It's a com- well, it's not a completely different film, but um, it's not fair to compare them. But I mean, I would just, you know, if we're just talking about things we like more. I'd probably say that.
0: But isn't aren't so many of the same elements? Yeah. in City Lights, happening at the end of Annie Hall.
1: That's true. Actually, that's true. Yeah, maybe that's why I thought of it. Yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Wow. And City Lights came how many years before? (laughs) (laughs) I know. But look, some things are just uh, fine-tuned over the years and get better and better, you know? That's true. That's true. That's true. (laughs) That's true. No, I don't know. That's true. Well, let me ask you this. Okay. What is your least favorite Chaplin movie?
0: So maybe like setting aside King of New York and setting aside Countess of Hong Kong of the iconic ones of the quote-unquote like Chaplin, Chaplin movies the canon you know it's really <laughs> really hard maybe not you don't not that
1: you have to dislike it but one that's maybe just the lowest on the list i i think the lowest on the list would have to be the circus mm, interesting
0: i think the circus just because like the production was so hard you know he's going through the divorce with lita that like gives a 10-month break to the production it just feels disjointed it feels uh, chaotic and he feels a little out of control, and he was. And I look, I mean, I, we're choosing between The Kid, A Woman of Paris, The Gold Rush, The Circus, City Lights, modern The Great times. Dictator, yeah. Modern Times. Yeah, I mean, how could you choose a worst movie of that? Bunch? All
1: of them, I'm just kidding.
0: I mean. <laughs> Spoken like a true Keaton fan. Um, (laughs) No, no, how can you you choose? I think that is the weakest of the bunch, of those seven.
1: It's funny because I've actually talked to a lot of people where the circus is their number one. Not that I agree, but I've just heard that. I'm I'm always taken aback a little. Like, I like the movie, but I'm like, oh, that's your favorite. Okay.
0: Really? I feel like it's a hipster take. Maybe. I think it's like, (laughs) oh, but... Have you seen The Circus? <laughs> uh, I feel like that's a hipster take. Uh wait, do you like Limelight? I do like Limelight. But here's the thing, I think Limelight is a theater movie for theater people. I was brought up, you know, in the theater, trained in the theater like Yeah, I I really I really like Limelight. I really like Limelight. If we're going to include uh Monsieur Verdue and Limelight, then Monsieur Verdue is the weakest film of the of the ones he made in America. Hmm. Um, I think. What about you? Why well, am like, Yeah. That's my least
1: favorite. Why? It felt bloated. His stuff can tend to feel a little bloated. Like I said, even the stuff I like, like uh, Great Dictator and even Modern Times is a little bloated. <laughs> Scandalous to say. No, you're right. But it's just, I don't know. I like the efficiency of some of his other stuff, like the Gold Rush and the Kid. Those are so efficient. And City Lights, too. They're just like, yeah, I don't know. I kind of prefer... I, I don't like when he gets too rambly.
0: Yeah, Um. I agree. I think it's a little hard, too, because we're also like, in a way, we're kind of not exactly like apples to oranges, but like comparing his silent features to then his dialogue features right. is really tough. Another thing that we have to add to the Keaton debate, which is one of them could cross over into talkies. One of them could not. <laughs> well... I forget exactly what happened
1: with Keaton, but there was some kind of I can, I, I can tell you he oh, le- yeah, he yeah. left his studio. Mm-hmm.
0: I think he left MGM and he signed with a different studio. He got paired with like a bad partner. Yes, yes. Who like really sank his product his his talkie productions, and then he also had a drinking problem and he slipped into alcoholism, and that's where his yeah, his career in the 30s went to went into the bottle.
1: Yeah, but Buster Keaton was in Sunset Boulevard, and Buster Keaton was in It's a Mad, 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 Mad
0: World and he was in <laughs> limelight as that's a true he bit was player, that's right that's right yeah yeah you know taking roles from charlie chaplin right yeah thank yeah. you mr chaplin <laughs> i would like another <laughs> um yeah i mean i chaplin's dialogue leaves something to be desired yeah
1: i agree it's it's the dialogue it's the pacing it's it, i feel like that movie was like 2 hours something like that it's just too long for a chaplin film i think yeah and didn't go dark enough maybe it's a really sad story and it kind of just like i feel like it's it's constantly it constantly wants to go a little bit deeper and it doesn't quite get there but
0: maybe I, i should also just watch it again i agree with your assessment um it's one of those movies that like the setting and some of the like extra elements just kind of like do it for me while i recognize that some of the syrupy sweet melodrama that was just such a part of chaplin's dna like doesn't quite translate to um, the story he's trying to tell. The deeply sad autobiographical kind of collage that he had created. I don't think he ever had a full good grasp of like... It's like he did, but it was like too traumatic for him to ever like fully access. And then he made Limelight under the circumstances of him already being in hot water with the FBI and the American public was like turning against him and um and i think all these things kind of like played into his mind as he made the movie and it led to like i mean who's to say that he made he he would go darker because usually his 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 general tendency is to go lighter Mm -hmm. you know um and that served him very well when dealing with subjects like cannibalism and (laughs) starvation and you know deprivation and you know homelessness but in that case, I, I agree with you it would've, it would have been really interesting if he did take a darker turn.
1: yeah, not the not that Keaton did. I'm not arguing that that but uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> in addition to inspiring Michael Bay, he was really the, the Paul Schrader of his times. <laughs> yep, believe it or not <laughs> okay, so we we've been talking about Chaplin and talking about Keaton and uh here's my, my my last question for you is like a lot of people refer to Chaplin as a genius. You know, this, and this word gets thrown around Hollywood a lot to this day. What do you think genius is? And is the idea of genius even helpful or is it just harmful? I think it's harmful. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Look, anybody being called that in their lifetime, I think is kind of a recipe for disaster because how does that not go to your head? And I think too, it's so objective. Like, uh, I, I just, I, I don't know the definition. I can't provide you with a definition like what makes someone a true genius or not. I think that the extent to which he was involved with his films and every facet of production, basically, and did sort of all the heavy lifting on his own is indicative of an incredibly talented person. But, yeah, I I do. I am wary of throwing that word around, even though I have called a couple people genius on scene and heard. But. I don't know. What do you think?
0: In my personal life, I've, like, come across, like, real living people or, like, come into the orbit of people that I was, like, so taken by that I was, like, willing to call them the G word. <laughs> um, And mostly that just set the stage to, like, be deeply hurt by them. And I think the same thing applies even at a distance. You know, we call people geniuses, and it's in a, there's an implicit promise in that that, like, they will let us down, yeah. and we will, like drop them and turn our backs on them and we will grow to hate them and the cycle continues you know of the 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 cannibalistic cycle of popular culture like keeps chugging along so i do think it's like probably like a pretty pretty strong like red flag i don't know many people that have been able to like carry that mantle and come out like somewhat sane maybe like paul mccartney just popped in my head for some reason of like <laughs> he doesn't seem like too terrible of a person maybe a bit <laughs> hopefully of a, maybe yeah maybe the, yeah the expose is coming <laughs> out like, i don't know paul mccartney's so. <laughs> I mean,
1: although he has not maintained uh, a level of musical excellence i think in terms of his newer stuff Uh, I did see him for the first time earlier this year. still great in concert, but yeah, his, I mean, he hasn't made great original music in like probably at least 10 to 20 years, you know, uh, you know, someone who maintained it until the end, David Bowie, right up until the fucking end. Oh yeah, (laughs) for sure. (laughs) Never lost that integrity. And a lot of people consider his last album, which was released like two days before he passed away. One of his best. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. It's so good. Although, you know what? I, I can't listen to it that often. Like, it's great, but like, it's just, it's so much. And it's it, intense. It's very intense. And uh,
0: and the songs are all like over six minutes long. So yeah. like, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a tough, like, sit down to listen. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'm with you that, like, overall, the term genius does more harm than good. And that, like, I think it would be helpful to find better descriptors. Um, I, I think
1: so, too. Just like, hey, they're an amazing artist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, I think someone alive that gets that label attached to them. That's, I mean, that's how you create like a Weinstein or something, you know, that's how you create a, a tyrant,
0: someone who thinks they're above everybody else, who treats people like shit. It's placing an objective fact upon a, a, a process yeah, and a constantly evolving process that can just as easily like fizzle out or consume itself or spin off into crazy land mm-hmm. than it can produce, um, you know incredibly powerful pieces that inspire a lot of people that like generally inspire the term in the first place yeah agreed well said um this has been great (laughs) thank you so much for letting me into your apartment (laughs) hey thanks for having me on of course of course we should definitely do this again um got a lot of things exciting coming up greg uh real quick before we go is there anything that you would like to plug
1: yeah check us out uh if you don't know my podcast uh with my co-host jackie it's seen and heard it's seen like a movie scene s-c-e-n-e and uh also run the royal film club and we do a weekly zoom on thursday evenings at seven thirty pacific time we have a lot of fun aaron is a regular fixture at yeah.
0: the film club and uh yeah check us out come hang out with me come hang out with greg let's watch a movie and uh talk about it yeah among many other fantastic members so many we have a great group really yeah it's so fun it's so fun very respectful wonderful conversations super smart and uh but very open like just very accepting group we're we're pretty lucky i think we're pretty great <laughs> <laughs> you said it i mean <laughs> anyway check out seen and heard it's the podcast that started this podcast and uh come to the royal film club until next week That's a wrap. He
1: is here with me. It's sunny weather all day.